0: Mark chapter four, beginning in verse thirty three, we read, and with many such parables, he, that is Jesus, spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples Jesus, of course, is the Savior, the Lord, who has come down from heaven. But all over the world, Jesus is known as a preacher and a teacher. Even for those people who don't necessarily identify themselves as Christians, they'll identify Jesus as a great preacher and teacher. And by the way, what makes a teacher truly great? As a matter of fact, if I were to ask you to do just a little mental exercise right now, I want you to think of a teacher either in junior high or high school. I want you to think of the favorite teacher that you ever had. And I'm going to suggest something to you. That he or she probably wasn't just simply the best teacher that you had simply because of the subject that they taught, but because of the impact that they had on your life. Martin Van Doren writes, The art of teaching is the art of assisting discovery. And Jesus was able to connect with his audience using illustrations. And the passage, by the way, gives three practical reasons why Jesus used illustrations in his teaching. The reasons include in verse 33 at the beginning of the verse to illustrate God's word. The second is to teach. Line by line, precept upon precept. And then we see in verse 34, Jesus will enforce his lessons in private to his disciples. William A. Ward said, the mediocre teacher tells. The good teacher explains. The superior teacher demonstrates. But the great teacher... The great teacher inspires. And so we see once again, verse 33, look at at the beginning of the verse, the servant's special preaching. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Now, Mark has already introduced that word parable in his gospel earlier In chapter 3, verse 23. And remember there, I explained to you what the word meant. It means to place one thing next to another and then draw comparisons. Another way of thinking about the word parable is that it is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. But it's that and more. Remember, we also saw that a parable has this powerful ability to conceal the truth from those who don't want to hear it, but to reveal the truth for those who want to hear it. The parable arouses and, and, and stimulates and instructs both the careless and the concerned. And so he's going to use that word 7 times in chapter 4. We've already seen it used in verse 2, in verse 11, and 10, verse 13, and now in verse 33 and 34. In the parables of chapter 4, Jesus has focused on several themes. In chapter 1 or chapter 4 verses 1 through 20, he focused on the theme of sowing. And now in verse 30 through 34, he returns to that theme. He's talked about shining in verses 21 through 25, reaping in verses 26 through 29. Later, he's going to address the very large theme of trusting in verses 35 through 41. Sarah McIntosh sort of alluded to it earlier when she was talking about every day when you breathe in 25,000 times a day, you're taking in life giving oxygen and you're exhaling the things that your body doesn't need toxins, but make no mistake about it. The theme is a reoccurring theme in real life. We know why Jesus goes to those familiar images of sowing and reaping, because the reality is that your life is the sum and the substance of everything that you did last year and last month and even last week. Make no mistake about it, whether you're willing to admit it or not, much of what is happening right at this very moment is an extension of what you've already done in the past. And also make no mistake about it, what you decide to do today will have an effect on what you do tomorrow and next week and next year. At this very moment, you're making decisions about whether or not you're going to do what's right instead of what's wrong. Whether or not you're going to glorify God or not glorify God. Whether or not you're going to be selfless or selfish. Whether or not you're going to lie or whether or not you're going to tell the truth. And the sum and the substance of the decisions that you're making right now will form you and shape you and affect you. And so parables are... Like windows for a building. Windows provide this wonderful thing. They provide light for the building. Ivor Powell writes, quote, a building without a window resembles a prison or a vault. And a sermon without an illustration becomes boring and unattractive. And so the Savior becomes the master story Preaching. He enshrines eternal truth in everyday happenings, whether it's sowing or or reaping. And when he preached in parables, even the children remembered what he said, unquote. And so at that verse and with many such parables, he spoke the word. I want to draw your attention to Mark's use of the singular Rather than the plural he's he doesn't say the words he says the word why do you suppose he uses that expression because he's talking about the sum and the substance of the message that Jesus delivered. That's why it's called the word. As a matter of fact, John even uses that description of Jesus himself in John chapter one, where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The New Testament describes the word of. The kingdom in Matthew thirteen, nineteen, and earlier in Mark chapter four, verse sixteen, and Luke chapter eight, verse fifteen. So the word is called the word of the kingdom, the word of God. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, the word of salvation, Acts 13, 26. Other adjectives in, include the word of his grace in Acts 20, 32. The word of faith in Romans 10, 8. The word of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. The word of life in Philippians 2, 16. The word of truth in Colossians 1, 5. The word of Christ in Colossians 3, 16. James refers to this as the engrafted word. Second Peter, the sure word word of prophecy in revelation chapter 3 verse 10 Jesus himself describes it as the word of my patience and later in revelation 12:11 it's called the word of there that is christians testimony and so you see that it It contains the great themes, the sum and the substance of what it means to have a right relationship with God. And so the preaching of Jesus returns to the great themes of the Bible. Repentance, turning from sin. Faith, turning to the Savior. Substitution, Jesus dying on a cross. Reconciliation, that's a word that means the bringing together of two estranged parties through the work of a third party it becomes the very definition of the gospel propitiation even though it's a big word it's pregnant with meaning the word means Jesus satisfies the holiness of God on the cross the theme of remission the putting away or the carrying away of our sins and all of the synonyms that go with it like forgiveness and regeneration Receiving a new nature through the second birth. And so Jesus will use the parables to illustrate the great and marvelous truths that are contained in the word, which is your Bible. And we love stories and illustrations. And I think that some scientists believe that the reason is because most people think in terms of Images and abstract thoughts, apart from pictures, are very difficult. And I'll prove it to you right now through an illustration. I'm going to use a word, and then you think of the first thing that comes to your mind. Superlapsenarianism. <laughs> yeah, that's dark. It's dark. I don't see anything. Everything just it was like the lights went out. It's a technical theological term, which refers to God's providence. Now I'm going to give you another term. Do not think about pink elephant. I know, what do you see? You see a pink elephant. Even then, you didn't want to. You go, make it go away! I think that that's one of the reasons why Jesus does what He does. By the way, parables require the listener To see the comparison, to think about the story and then the truth that's in that story. Parables were never intended for the lazy or the person who doesn't want to think. And so why should we study the parables? Well, for at least two reasons, because they are mirrors and because they are windows In what way are they mirrors? Because when you read the story of Jesus, you can't but help see yourself in the parable. Where do I fit in? The other reason is that it's a window. In other words, the parable allows you to see beyond the wall, to see beyond the veil. You begin to understand God's nature and God's character. And by the way, there's another reason. It's as simple as one third of everything that Jesus taught was in parables. And because the parables are a part of God's word, and because we live and breathe by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, it makes sense that we would want to know what Jesus is saying. And some of the parables Jesus taught were in the context of opposition by the religious leaders. You'll remember that the religious leaders criticized Jesus and blamed Jesus and mocked Jesus for eating with sinners. And so Jesus told a parable. In Luke chapter 15, verse 3 and verse 8 and verse 11, he told a parable about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. You might wonder why would Jesus spend so much time talking about the subject of estrangement or being lost? Why are people lost? Well, the Bible teaches that human beings are lost because of their rejection of biblical revelation. They're lost because they've disobeyed their own conscience. They're lost because of their relationship to the world. And they're lost because of their relationship to Satan. But most of all, most of all, most of all, they're lost because of their relationship to sin. Sin has separated them from God. Sin has created a dark hole and an empty cavity. Sin has generated guilt and complicity. The Bible says that our sin separates us from God. And so Jesus tells a story about people who hold things that are precious. For the shepherd, it's sheep. And for the person who has the string of coins, it's the lost coin. It was a wedding veil coin. And the lost son speaks of the fact of a father who's estranged from his son. The point of the passage becomes something that you love that is separated from you and the followers of Jesus would begin to think about these things. And some of the followers of Jesus thought that they were successful because of the large crowds that would come and hear the master speak. Earlier in chapter 4, they gather, gathered at Capernaum. A crowd has, has shown up to hear Jesus speak. And remember, that's where he tells the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil. And it's interesting, Jesus does it in part. For the crowd, but he does it in part for his own disciples when he reminds them that the seed is only going to fall on twenty five percent of the soil. And so. They're parables. And they are mirrors and they are windows. We see ourselves. We see God. By the way, some passages in the Bible are difficult to understand. But no matter how difficult they are, Jesus finds a way and invites you into the story so that you can see yourself and you can see your circumstances. So we go from the servant's preaching to the servant's special perception. Look at the end of the verse. It says in verse 33, he spoke the word to them as they were able to. Hear it. In the original language, it's very interesting. Kathos. Edunanto. Akuin. It may not mean a whole lot to you. It's in the imperfect tense. It implies something in the original language that over a period of time, Jesus continues over and over again using repetition to tell the same story. And by the way, only Mark makes this statement. Why is that important? Because repetition seems to be a part of learning. Jesus knows about human weakness. He knows about limitations. He knows what we can and can't understand. And Jesus makes sure that he doesn't preach over the people's understanding. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. At the end of his ministry, when he's getting ready to die, he's trying to impart information to his disciples. And in verse 13 of chapter 16, he says, however, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will tell you about things to come. I got to tell you something. This is the hardest part for me. You may not believe it, but every time I get into this pulpit, every time I open my Bible, every time I look at a verse, you know who I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about you. I actually have you in mind. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about what you can hear and not hear. I'm thinking about what you can understand or not understand. I'm thinking about how can I make this so simple? That even a seventh grader can understand it. And that's the point that part of the point that Jesus makes. He speaks in such a way, knowing the limitations that there will be some of you who will understand, but others of you will not understand. By the way, what kind of a message has the power? What kind of a message has the power to change you from the inside out? Let me suggest to you that it has to have three necessary qualities. A message, in order to be powerful and with the ability to change you, the first thing it must do, it must convey truth. The message has has to have the characteristic of being true, not opinion, not fabrication, not favorite ideas, even if it comes from a person who is passionate and enthusiastic. In order for a message to be powerful, it has to be true. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus lives and why his message is repeated in every generation. Because it has the power to change the person. A sermon must convey the truth of God. It must reveal to the listener something true, something wonderful, something powerful, Every God-centered sermon, every Christ-centered presentation should begin with words that sound something like this. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It should say something like, This is what Jesus said, or this is what Jesus did. So not only must it convey truth, it should have the capacity to convict the hearer. It isn't just simply what's said, but it has to include the conviction that comes from the statement that is made. When the Lord speaks, usually one of two things will really happen. The person listening will get very, very glad, or they'll get very, very sad. Because it's almost impossible to hear the words of Jesus and not be affected by them. When Jesus says, I came from heaven. When Jesus says, God is my father, when Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's an invitation that's given. But the conviction has to include the reality. When Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. Perish. But have everlasting life for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. What are you saying that the world is living under the auspices, under a dark cloud of condemnation? And the answer, of course, is yes. The reality is that there's something wrong in it and it requires something right Peter Marshall, who served as a chaplain to the United States Senate, was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. He was from Scotland, and he would open in prayer in the United States Senate, and sometimes he would pray, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change. And when we are right, make it easy to live with us. We all find ourselves right and we all find ourselves wrong. John Toller wrote, quote, those who have never felt anxiety on account of their sin are in the most dangerous condition of all. And I think for good reason. Because if you have deceived yourself into thinking that your life doesn't matter or that lies don't matter. Or your estrangement from God doesn't matter. Or that eternity doesn't matter. You know, it's one thing to lie to the person sitting next to you. It's another thing to lie to yourself. And it's an even further crime to lie to God. You might be able to live with the deception and you might be able to live with the hypocrisy, but make no mistake about it, the apostasy will catch up with you. You can't lie to God and get away with it forever. So the message has to convey the truth. The message has to convict the hearer, but also the message has to do one final thing. It has to have the capacity to consent to convince or to persuade. In other words... It has to have the ability to persuade you that the wise choice, the best choice, I may even go so far as to say the only choice is to go God's way. It's to think about what God wants. It's to ask and answer the question, Lord, what is it that you want from me? What's the direction that you want me to go? In any given circumstance, we may value the opinion of wise men, but in the end, it's the statement of Jesus as the revelation of God's word that gives us the greatest sense of assurance. So when Jesus whispers the word, come and follow me, when Jesus says, believe in me, when Jesus says, embrace me, it communicates this profound sense of assurance for the person who knows him and conviction for those who don't. Conversion implies committing all of me to all I know about Jesus. Let me say that again conversion implies committing everything I know about myself to everything I know about Jesus Billy Graham said true conversion will involve the mind and the affection and the will and so when a former president at his inauguration reads Second Chronicles 7.14. The Lord said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The implication is a people who are called by his name, who in humility and prayer seek the Lord's face, but also are willing to turn from their sin. No wonder Jesus says in the passage or as Mark says in the passage on behalf of Jesus. Jesus spoke note as they were able to hear it but some weren't able to hear, just like now. You may think, I wonder if he knows that I'm falling asleep. Yeah, I kind of do. I know that you'll you'll make that spiritual move where you go, okay, I'm just going to close my eyes and take it all in. No one is more familiar than me with the power that I have to wake you up and make you nap. J. Gresham Machen, who was one of the great scholars of the 19th century, wrote, Men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative. That we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book. Polemic means... A book that was meant to be used as a platform to teach. He writes... From beginning to end, why can you start in Genesis chapter one, one and go to Revelation and from every chapter and every verse teach about Jesus? Because it was Jesus who said to the religious leaders of his own day and also to his own disciples after he rose from the dead. You search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are those which testify about me. Does it shock you or surprise you that Genesis has something to do with Jesus and Exodus has something to do with Jesus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy? That the revelation of God is pointing to the fact that human beings are estranged from God and all of human history is centered in the one fundamental fact that God is trying to bring people back to himself? And so, Machen writes, quote, it is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that they have risen to the really great heights in the celebration of the truth, unquote. In other words, it's not good enough to simply tell the truth. You have to oppose that which is false. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we're reminded that salvation is always by innocent blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. In Hebrews 5.9, Acts 4.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we understand that salvation is always through a person. It's not going to the Roman Catholic Church. It's not going to the Protestant Church. It's not going to the, the Baptist Church. Not a single human being was ever forgiven their sin and reconciled to God by a church. Salvation comes from a person and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is always by grace, it says in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Titus 2.11 And salvation is always always by faith. Romans 5.1 and Hebrews 11.6 Because without faith it's impossible to please Him. And if salvation is always by blood and if salvation is always through a person and if salvation is always by grace and if salvation is always by faith then it doesn't seem to make sense to talk about a faith apart from Jesus. And so we see the servant's special pupils. Look at verse 34. But without a parable he did not speak to them. And when they were alone he explained all things to his disciples. This is an important part of our message when you should ask Yet another question. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus that very question? They asked Jesus, please tell us the reason that you're speaking in parables. And Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. In Isaiah 6, 9, it says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah 6:10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Why does Isaiah say those words? Because they were estranged from God. Why does Isaiah say those words? Because they were sick and estranged from God. And by the way, the passage is quoted five times in the Greek New Testament. Matthew 13, 4, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, John 12:39. over and over and over again, this passage is repeated. Why do you suppose it's repeated so often? Because it must be important. The prophecy in Isaiah refers to the moral erosion and the spiritual deterioration that had taken place in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. They could hear God's word, but they couldn't understand it. They could see the power of God at work, but they weren't able to perceive what he was doing. Their dull hearts would make them spiritually deaf and blind and it would result in judgment. And so that was part of the point. The people in Jesus' day could see God's power at work, but they didn't understand what God was doing. And the same is true today. You see what God is doing in, in the life of your husband, in the life of your wife, in the life of your child. You see what God is doing. You look around you. You see People's lives fundamentally and radically changed. You see people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and all kinds of selfishness and wickedness. And all of a sudden their life is fundamentally different. When D.L. Moody would preach this sermon, he tells the story of a man who got up and he made testimony and he said, I don't know about Jesus turning water to wine, but I know he turned beer into furniture. How did he turn beer into furniture? Because the beer that he would, the money that he would make, that he would go to buy beer, he stopped buying the beer and he started buying furniture for his wife and kids. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, in verse 13, that's why I speak to them in parables. Because they seeing see not in Mark and Luke instead of because he uses the word that Mark 4, 11, Luke 8, that they seeing see not. What are you saying? Because Jesus will reveal his plan of life and his plan of love and his plan of forgiveness for people who want to hear it. But he will conceal from those who don't there will be people who are listening to this message who will say I get it and there will be others listening to this message who say I don't see the point I don't see what you're trying to say what are we to think it seems by, be, by using parables, Jesus will awaken the interest of those who really want to know about God's word. And they really want to know about God's plan. And they really want to know about God's purpose. And they really want to know about their own spiritual circumstances. And they want the emptiness to go away. And they want the darkness to go away. And they want the guilt to go away. But they just don't know how to make it go away. Well, I'm here to tell you that the way that you make it go away is by confessing your sin and by, by, by realizing that Jesus is willing to forgive your sin. The same message that will awaken one will cause the other one to go to sleep at the wheel. And look at the, at the end of verse 34. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained All things to his disciples. I want you to look carefully at that expression. He explained. The Greek verb is epi, luo. Luo, by the way, is a word in the Greek language which meant to set free or to loose. And epi means upon. The word in its combination is only in Acts 19.39 and 2 Peter 1.20. But the literal sense of the word is to set free or to release. In the ancient word world, they would actually use this term to describe untying, A difficult knot. Have you ever gotten a knot in a very fine chain? And it's almost impossible to get that knot undone. And because I have big, fat, thick, clumsy hands, I'll give it to my wife and I'll say, Sweetie, can you untie this knot? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's untying the story. Jesus is taking that which is inexplicable to the disciples, and he's carefully revealing the difficult parts of the story. As a matter of fact, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, uses the, the same word when he says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Same word. Translated here, explanation. Or untying. In other words, the Scripture isn't a matter of some private explanation. The Scripture doesn't mean that God has one plan depending on how you read it, because the reoccurring theme in every book of the Bible Every chapter in the Bible at some point will point you to the fact that we're sinners and that we're in need of a Savior. And so that's why redemption is a reoccurring theme. And that's why you see redemption in all of its shades and nuances. Jesus unties the story. And when Jesus finishes the explanation, the disciples are are to be able to repeat and communicate the story in a way that would make sense to anyone who was bothering to listen. And this provides a clue, by the way, to how we should study the parables. It gives us this overarching clue that when we open up our Bible and we begin to read any part of the Bible, but most certainly when we read the parables, we should ask and answer this question, if at all possible... Let Jesus explain the story. You know, I rarely feel like I'm in danger of losing my job. I'd love to be able to explain it to you. But the reality is, there's someone far more better equipped to explain and untie the story. Open up your Bible and ask and answer this question. Jesus... Will you please explain what this means to me? And by the way, that gives us yet another clue. Parables should be read in context. Just like all the scripture should be read in context. If you ignore the context, you can make a parable say almost anything you want it to say. Imagine some imaginative Bible teachers and even false teachers do just that. Let me give you a popular example. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, some of you know the story. A man leaves Jerusalem. He goes to Jericho. He's going down the road. He falls among some thieves. The thieves beat him up. They leave him for dead. They rob him. And a Good Samaritan comes by. He, with oil and, and wine, he heals his wounds. He takes him to the inn. He gives him two days' wages so that he can take care of him well-meaning Bible teachers say why Jerusalem is heaven and Jericho is hell and each person is a pilgrim on the road robbed by Satan left half dead alive physically dead spiritually religion can't save them only Jesus he's the good Samaritan the oil represents the Holy Spirit the wine is blood the in the church the two denarius stand for the two ordinances of baptism and supper the Samaritan promises to come back and so does Jesus amen All of that is true, but none of it fits the story. Because it's really not about that at all. When you read the story itself, a wicked attorney. And if you're an attorney, take no offense to this. A wicked attorney asks Jesus the question. Remember, Jesus talks about loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. And the wicked attorney says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. Because the stubborn lawyer. Was unwilling to do what Jesus had asked. He wants a religious relationship. He wants to be a good Jew and an observant Jew and a religious observant Jew. The moment that he's asked to actually love the Lord and love his neighbor, what he's going to discover is how far he falls short and how much he's in desperate need of a savior. We should look for the main truth that a parable teaches and we should be careful not to make the parable say more than it actually says or less than what it actually says. By the way, the symbols... Don't always mean the same thing in every parable. In the parable of the sower, the seed represented the word of God and the soil, the human heart. But in the poor parable of the tares, the seed represents the children of the kingdom while the field is the world. And it would appear that Jesus is using parables to illustrate truth. And so we have to ask God sometimes to open up our heart and our eyes so that we'll have spiritual perception. Look again at the end of the verse. He explained, untied all these things to his disciples. What do you think that means? Well, I think it means with understanding comes responsibility. The moment that you know something, you're responsible for it. I didn't know it was wrong to drink and drive. Really? Seriously? You didn't know that that was wrong? I didn't know it was Wrong to lie. I didn't know it was wrong to cheat. I didn't know it was wrong to steal. I didn't know it was wrong to commit adultery. Really? There's something inside of us that senses that there's such a thing as right and such a thing as wrong. Well, it it all depends. Really? Can you ever think of a good time when it's okay to torture a child just for fun? Okay, you got me there. Do you understand what I'm saying? The moment you concede that there's something wrong, and it's always wrong, you're making a judgment. Jesus, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 47 says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Verse 48, But he who did not know, yet committed things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. What? What? Yeah, Jesus says ignorance is no excuse. That the things that you did yesterday will affect you today. And make no mistake about it, the things that you do today will affect you tomorrow. The Lord will reveal truth to to those who seek it. But for those who turn away, even the truth that they once understood will be taken away from them. And so in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus teaches a series of parables. By the way, in Matthew 13, the rebellion and rejection of Jesus has reached a kind of a pinnacle. The religious leaders hate Jesus and want to see him dead. And what happens to Jesus when the people and the nation reject him? What happens when both king and kingdom are rejected? Jesus teaches the parable of the tares in Matthew 13. Where the man is Christ in verse 37. The seed are believers. The children of the kingdom in verse 38. The field is the world. The enemy is Satan in verse 39. The tares are the children of the devil in verse 38. The reapers are angels in verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age. And there will come a time when believer and make-believer Will both peek their head through the sand. And some will go to heaven. And some won't. By the way, it's in that context that Jesus continues with a parable about hidden treasure in verse 44. A pearl of great price in verse 45. He gives a parable, a single sentence parable about a householder. Jesus says, have you understood all of these things? And the disciples with a happy face say, yes, Lord. (laughs) Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out the treasure, things old and things new in the parable. Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out treasure old and new. What in the world does this mean? Well, Jesus is pointing out three things, three responsibilities that we have toward the word of God and the truth about God. We have a responsibility to learn the truth. Why? Because the scribe's job was to examine the law, discover its meaning and purpose. The scribe's whole job was to preserve, protect And communicate God's word. But something horrible happened. Something terrible. Something tragic happened. The scribe became more interested in protecting man-made religion and dead tradition than living the truth. And so Jesus accuses them of putting the people into bondage and not liberty because they were so fascinated and preoccupied with the past that they neglected the present. And instead of opening the door for sinners to be saved, they slammed the door in their face. You don't need to be saved. You don't need your sins forgiven. You're fine just the way you are. You're a Jew. You're a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have a Bible and you have promises and you have religious traditions. The scribes were blind because they refused to follow God's Messiah. They wouldn't follow Jesus. And part of the point of the passage was they had a responsibility to learn the truth, but they had a responsibility to learn the truth because they had a responsibility to live the truth. And it's never changed. The moment you discover something to be true, you're responsible for it. And it's supposed to change the way that you live. There's a desperate need today between theory and practice about living and learning. But there's something else. There's something else. It's not just simply knowing the truth and it isn't even simply living the truth with knowing the truth and living the truth. Comes the responsibility of sharing the truth. And so the scribe brought things out things old, treasures, and things new. The treasure? It's the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had a treasure just like we have spiritual treasure. It is the currency that we've accumulated through a lifetime of living and learning. And it has to be shared money that's not invested is wasted and it accomplishes rarely anything useful in the same way we share the old and the new. The old is what we have learned as scribes. The new is what we have learned as disciples practicing the truth. It is those who obey God's word who learn the most of God's word. Who should also have the most to share. By the way, if you're old like me, take heart. Because the new comes out of the old. We need the old. Thank you, old person. We need the old. Because the new comes from the old. There are always new applications of old truths. There's always new insights. There's maybe old principles. There's new understandings. There may be old relationships, but there's a new way of looking at it. Maybe you need to do exactly that. Maybe you need to take an old story and make it new in your life. Maybe you need to take an old principle Things that you heard over and over again. And you need to make it real in your life. Remember, we don't learn simply to know. What we learn, we live. And what we live, we share. Do you know that Jesus is still in the business of changing hearts? Forgiving sinners? Reconciling them to the Father? If the emptiness in your life and if the guilt in your life, if the estrangement from God in your life is something that needs to change, it can happen right now. You can turn from your sin and you can embrace the Savior. You can know Him and learn about Him and live for Him. I'm going to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person whose heart is empty, that you'd fill it, whose guilt is tangible. They can feel the weight of their wickedness pushing them further and further from God. Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. That Jesus is that Savior. I understand that he died on the cross for my sin. Lord, I've come to realize that salvation comes from shedding blood and salvation comes from a person and salvation comes by grace and by faith. And Lord, I understand that if I'm ever going to be right, it's going to have to be where where I place my confidence in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And Lord, that's the very definition, isn't it? Placing everything that I know about myself, a sinner, wicked and estranged from God. And all that I know about Jesus, He said that He would take me if I would come to Him. And that He wouldn't reject me. And so I come to Him. With nothing to offer but my sin. And I pray that you would forgive me. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Forgive me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. And make me a new person. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.